Hello and welcome to the Sardaukar Signalling Forum author interview podcast. My name is Professor Peter Nash from the University of Queensland and today I have the pleasure to talk with Professor Roy Fleischman from the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Centre. Welcome Professor Fleischman and thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. So today we're here in New York where uh, upadacitinib has uh, recently been approved by the FDA and there's uh, a launch meeting going on and we'll be discussing two papers very topical on upadacitinib uh, that have recently been published. The first is the um, upa versus placebo or adalimumab in patients with rheumatoid arthritis that have an inadequate response to methotrexate results of the phase three double blind randomized controlled trial. The second is the safety and efficacy of UPA or adalimumab plus methotrexate in patients with RA over 48 weeks, weeks with switched therapy in patients with insufficient response. So let's start off by talking about UPA decitinib for those people who aren't familiar with the drug. Can you tell us a little bit about this particular jack? So upadacitinib is a supposedly a JAK1 preferential molecule, oral small molecule. So it's um, selective JAK1, it's an oral small molecule, and it's a once-a-day dosing extended release medication. Okay. This selective pair paper would be one of the pivotal papers of this last 12 months. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, the design and uh, how you went about this particular study. So this is a very unique study. Um, I think actually it was probably the first study that was designed in this way. So what we did was was in the primary the primary endpoint was an ACR20 at week 12 of upadacid of 15 milligrams, not 30 milligrams, but 15 milligrams, which is now the approved drug in the U.S. plus methotrexate uh, in methotrexate incomplete response patients who continued methotrexate and then treated with placebo. And uh, as I said, the primary endpoint was an ACR20 uh, at week 12 for the U.S. Uh, for the EMA, the primary endpoint was achieving a DOS28 of less than 2.6. Both of those endpoints were met uh, versus placebo. Um, in the initial part of the study, uh, although there was a group that was on adalimumab as methotrexid in um, responders, that was not the primary endpoint of the first part of the study. That was actually a uh, ranked secondary endpoint. So the ranked secondary endpoint was comparing upadacitinib 15 milligrams plus methotrexate to adalimumab plus methotrexate ACR50 at week 12, and also what ranked was a change in the hat, adacitinib versus adalimumab, and uh, change in uh, facet F15 of upadacitinib uh, versus uh, adalimumab. So what was unique about this was, was that you have the initial part, which is does upadacitinib work versus methotrexate? Yes. And then a powered head-to-head Bupadacitinib versus adalimumab using the ACR50, which is the appropriate endpoint uh, in this type of study because it's head to head. And looking at both the ACR50 and the HEC, 
but now for the first time the uh, facet F as well. And then the second part of the study, this is week 20, this is 26 weeks, is that the pa patients who did not have an improvement of at least 20% tendon swelling, uh, swelling joints who were treated with adalimumab was switched to upadacitinib. And patients who did not have a, uh, that type of response who were on um, uh, the reverse, uh, uh, adalimumab switched to upadacitinib, upadacitinib switched to adalimumab, and placebo switched to upadacitinib. So this is now the first study of a patient who fails a TNF, fails adalimumab, and is switched to a JAK. We have a number of studies of patients who failed the TNF and switched to JAK, but we don't have the reverse. Okay, so, that's, so we looked at that. That's unique and very nicely done. So just tell us a touch about the um, baseline demographics about this group of patients. They were long-standing rheumatoid, a pretty active disease. Yeah, so it was a basically female population. Uh, in the mid-50s, uh, active disease about uh, eight years, as I remember. Um, they had, uh, they were on methotrexate, a fair dose of methotrexate. I think the mean was about 17 milligrams. Um, and they had active disease. Uh, if you looked at the C-dial, looked at the DOS-20 CRP, and the joint counseling, joint communication global, physician global, et cetera, high hack. Um, uh, almost all of them were positive for rheumatoid factor uh, or anti-CCP. Um, and we also looked at x-ray in this study, and the mean uh, total Sharpe score, modified Sharpe score, at baseline was in the mid-30s. So they had active obstructive disease. Um, and can you just tell us about um, the primary endpoint and what were the results of the study? So the primary endpoint was, is, is upadacinib plus methotrexate superior to placebo plus methotrexate based on an ACR20 at week 12? Yes. Um, and did it achieve a DOS 28 CRP of less than 2.6 uh, versus placebo at week 12? Yes, it did. That's the primary point. Ranked secondary was, which is very important, was the was this head-to-head of upadacinib versus adalimumab. And upadacinib was superior in terms of obtaining a ACR50, and in terms of a hack response, a better hack response with uh, um, epatacitib than uh, uh, adalimumab, and in improving fatigue. So the three ranked uh, secondary um, endpoints uh, of upatacitib versus adalimumab were also positive. So what's the standard therapy, TNF-amethotrexate, in many countries in the world, for the second, the JAKs have shown that they can be su superior to that gold standard as long as there's a combination of methotrexate. Well, as you know, there are actually four different studies, yes. right? So there are studies, this one with upadacinib, the one with baricinib at four milligrams, where there was superior. Uh, we also did the study of tofacinib uh, versus adalimumab, where the endpoint was a little Different. It's a little different bit different. Different study design. Different study design, where that was at least as good as that at Olympiad. Then we also saw a report, it hasn't been published yet, of filgotinib versus that Olympiad, where the higher dose of filgotinib, the 100 milligrams plus methotrexate, 
uh, in terms of a DOS 28 CRP, less than 3.2, less than 3.2, was superior to Adelin in that as well. So it's building the strength of the whole Jack class in comparison to the TNF. It makes it feel more consistent and more um, across the board, if you like, as long as there's methotrexate in the mix, I suspect. So all these studies were in combination with methotrexate. Yes. They were not monotherapy. Yes. Uh, as you know, one of the one of the major advantages of JACs is that many, many patients can be treated with monotherapy. But monotherapy has not been shown to be superior. I think that there has been a paradigm shift. There will be a paradigm shift in the near future, depending on economics. Sure. Because everything's economics, sure. right? Um, if these drugs are affordable compared to biosimilars, Remember that one of them, tofacitum, will be generic and not uh, not that many years. There is evidence that you probably could and maybe you should use a member of the JAG class before a biologic after methotrexate failure. You can certainly consider that. Sure. And you also have to think about safety. We'll come to safety now. Just to talk to for a second, speed of onset of different speed of onset of action of the jack and the durability over time. How long would you treat for before you would say this person is a non-responder? So what we saw in this study, which we've also seen with baricitinibe, we've also seen with tofacitinibe, and I think we've seen with this one, is that patients can respond and separate, actually, from adalimumab within a week, within a week or two. So they have a very quick onset of action, which isn't surprising considering that they're they're very short half-life. They reach steady state very quickly. This is a biologic. What we've also seen with all of these drugs, including this one in this study, is maintenance of response. You're going to see tachyphylaxis. So the responses that we've seen up to a year, 48, have been maintained. And the separation between upadacinitib and adalimumab has also been maintained for the 48 weeks. And is there a... With TNFs, you can make your call at 12 weeks to decide that they've usually plateaued at about that time, stop, go with the therapy. What about the JAX? I think that that's the same. So what I would do, uh, so we could have a discussion here, but the JAX certainly can work quicker. What I tell a patient is you may have a response within a week. I want to look at you in 12 weeks. In 12 weeks, you could have a response. You may not reach goal in 12 weeks, but you may have had a pretty good response. If you had a good enough response, a, a drop in the CDI of 50 60%, and then they start with high disease activity, now they're in moderate disease activity, not low disease activity, but they drop from high to moderate, I might consider them for another 12 weeks before I give up. I would actually do the same thing with biologics. Sure. If a biologic patient responds, it doesn't get to low disease activity, but the responding, I'd give it another 12 weeks. Okay, now let's a little bit of this ACR responses because Barisid has made a big deal about the pain separation from the TNS. See that kind of separation in this UPA study. For example, did the swollen joint cap separate? Did the pain separate? Physician, for, for Barry, it was pain, physician, and patient global that seemed to drive the superiority. About with exactly the same. Exactly the same. So it's not swollen joints, but it is those other parameters. 
I don't remember, but swollen joints dropped, tendon joints dropped, pain dropped, fatigue dropped, physician global dropped, patient global dropped. They all dropped. They all. But I think the, there's no separation in the drop of swollen joints, TNF to UPA, which is a very interesting difference. Yeah, I'm not quite sure about that. Okay. And can you speculate about this pain story? Adam Jacks, is there a peripheral nerve element? They, well, they don't seem to cross the blood-brain barrier. They, they don't cross the blood-brain barrier. No. Um, we also know that IL-6 is involved in peripheral nociception. And the Jacks do inhibit, to some extent, IL-6. So it may be in, in inhibition of IL-6 that you're seeing this differential response but there may be other factors as well. Uh, we've shown with baricinidum, I suspect we could show the same with dipenicinidum or topicinidum, that there, the difference in pain is not just inflammatory. Uh, so you get a significant drop in pain even in patients who don't have a significant drop in therapy. With adalimumab, the drop in pain is due to inflammation. And that's very curious because Gilgshed has shown MRI brain changes with TNFs before swollen joints drop, SR drops. So this it's a complicated issue. And I think when, when did you show that? Yeah, yeah. When? Oh, last year, I think. I could find the reference, but it's interesting. Because the initial, you're old enough to remember, <laughs> when, when infliximab was out there, when it started, so this is 1999, we saw patients treated with infliximab who had tremendous pain relief within an hour or two sure. before they could have inflammatory. So we knew there was a, a central effect of that TNF 20 years ago. And that's interesting because, again, large molecules not supposed to get across the blood-brain So I'm not sure I understand this. Tell us a little about the radiology side of this particular study. Yeah, so uh, the drug does not stop radiographic progression, but it certainly inhibits radiographic progression. So what we saw in this study was uh, it was about 88% of patients did not have progression, as opposed to the methotrexate group, where it was about 78%. So we're used to that with methotrexate. It's about 75 78%. So um, there are more patients who do not have progression. The degree of progression is lower with the medicine than it is with methotrexate. But of course, if you did a probability plot, you'll still see one or two patients who will progress no matter what. Through DMARD, okay. It's, a, it's not an NSAID. Although it's oral, it's not an NSAID. It's a now, safety, there are a lot of safety concerns with class. A little bit about um, safety issues and in topic issues like VTE. Yeah, so let's talk about VTE because I don't know the answer to VTE. I do know that VTE, the VTEs that we see with this is not JAK2. I know it's not JAK2 because if you heard the whole discussion of the FDA, baricitinib, the FDA hematologist felt it was not JAK2 and there's no reason to suspect it actually. Um, so what's interesting in compare, the study that we're talking about there was a VTE in the placebo group. There were two VTEs in the hepatocinib 15 milligram group, and there were three in the adalimumab group. It's 
quite balanced across them. It's a balance is one to two to three. <laughs> so it depends on how you look at it. I look at it a little bit different. I think that's really what you were saying. You saw VTEs in every group. Yes. You see VTEs in patients of RA, with a treated with uh, treated with conventional synthetic, with a biologic, or with a jack. Are the jacks really more likely to produce a VTE than a biologic? I'm not sure that's true. Just not sure that's true. Um, is is there dose related? Maybe, yeah, maybe COFA, um, but we don't know. But what we do know that in all the programs, the VTE risk is the IR is about 0.5. And if you take a look worldwide, the risk of VTE not treated with any of these drugs is 0.5. So they do occur, so you have to be aware. And your recommendation for the practicing clinician with the VTE. So the VTEs have been have been seen primarily in patients of past history VTE or patients treated with a COX-2. So if the patient is treated with a COX-2, I would actually take them off a COX-2. I don't care if they're on methotrexate or lumimab or if they're on ubiquitin, but I would not use a COX-2. And if they have had prior VTE, then my my choice is: Do I treat them with what? And the answer is, yes, I'll treat them with what? And what could be any of these drugs? But if they had a past history, I might think about prophylaxis of those patients um, or certainly discuss the risk with them. But the risk of RA is mm -hmm. terrible. Yes. So with some VTE, um, the zoster, just some of those other infective type issues. So zoster, you know, occurs in patients with RA anyway. They do have a higher incidence than jacks, with jacks a little bit higher. Um, what I tell the patients is you do have a risk. It is a little bit higher. Um, I, I am now suggesting, it's available in the U.S., is Shingrix. Um, but we don't really have the, the evidence yet that Shingrix is really safe and that it really prevents disaster. Could you just tell us how you do that? You've got someone with active disease. Um, methotrexate isn't working, you're about to go biological jack, do you stop things? Do you just give them a script for Shindrix? What do you Shindrix do? Shindrix is dead vaccine. I can do it anytime I want to. I don't have to do anything. Zostervax, which is live, I'm not sure it works real well, but there's a lot of evidence, registry evidence, that even Zostervax, you don't have to stop the drugs. Okay. Even though in all of the product inserts, it's a stop the drug for two weeks, four weeks, eight weeks, whatever. Um, uh, so I'm not sure that that's actually valid, that you really do have to stop with a lot of vaccines. But we do, we do prefer the, 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 the Shingrix anyway. Um, Kevin Winthrop's publication suggested that if you re got rid of steroids, then you could really reduce the zoster risk back to ground risk. That has to be done with UPA. That analysis has not been done with UPA. I will tell you that I'm very well aware of the Winthrop and the steroids with Tocitinib. We talked about that. Yeah. Um, I, uh, with Baricitinib, we actually didn't see that. Yes, 
unusual. It was well, it, we didn't say it. <laughs> so paracetamol. I don't know whether it's a difference in the molecule, but we've waited now. We've had lots of patients for a long period of time, and if that if that steroid risk is there, we should have, we should see it. Okay. The, the data actually came out with you less likelihood of disaster with a higher dose. That makes no sense at all. Well, it may be correct. <laughs> what about TB? How should you handle TB with a stroke? So you would screen for TB before you stir it. And the product insert in the United States, which I agree with, is you check periodically. Now, you and I have had this discussion. Good is the technique, right? So whether you do a, uh, a, a TST or whether you do an IGRA, the physician has to realize that both of those are about the same in terms of their probability of being correct. It's about 80%. So you can't be 100% sure when you get a negative. Right. You can't be 100% sure. Um, but you should check from time to time. And there are other places where, you know, they just wait and see whether the patient's really at risk. Right. So I, uh, uh, with my patient population in Dallas, will tell a patient, uh, if you're on these drugs or biologic, um, a good place to go might be Europe. And I don't know that I would go to South America or I would go to <laughs> India, India or... That's very fine. Okay, so we've talked a little bit about that. Um, screening, this should, should be exactly the same as any other JAK, any other biologic. There's nothing special. You check for the viruses, check hepatitis B, hepatitis C, HIV, you look for liver function tests. I do check lipids before I start because the lipids are up. I should be treating it anyway, uh, but I certainly check the lipids before I start. Uh, I want to make sure that the white count, particularly lymphocyte count, uh, is high enough. Um, I want to make sure uh, that there isn't a marked mark anemia, because these drugs can cause anemia. Uh, liver function tests. So the usual jack things, gastric, CPK, creatinine, um, those kinds of things are seen with like every other jack. Okay, so you brought up an interesting problem. So you do see CPK. There hasn't been a patient in this program that I'm aware of. There certainly hasn't been a patient in the Barry program or in the TOFA program of a developed myositis, even though the CPK is elevated. And that's actually not a reason to stop it. And I've had patients who have persistently high CPKs, but they do well with drugs and it's The increase in creatinine can occur. Um, but again, there hasn't been a single patient who has had renal failure associated with any of these drugs. Sure. Um, so I don't really, really worry about that either. Um, and then what was the other one? Gastric perforation. Gastric. So with you, it was interesting. So they do present, I think it's three cases of gastric perforation in their product. But when you actually take a look at them, they were not gastric perforations. Right? Those appendicitis, I remember, there was anal something else. So we don't really see the perforations. Um, and I can tell you that in the um, uh, cerulean map data, there's actually very little perforations as well. So I think it's because we've come to realize that patients with a history of diverticulitis are not really the type of patient that would want to treat with an L6 or a JAX. So those patients are avoided, okay. true diverticulitis. Talk about the SWITCH study now because that's a bit unique to go from 
tell us a little bit about how that park was put together? Yeah. Just remind us and then what you found. So what we did was, was in the first part of the study, the first 26 weeks, um, if you look at uh, week 14 and 22, if a patient not have improvement in tender and swollen joint counts of at least 20%, both of them, then they were switched. Ada went to UPA, to Ada, placebo went to UPA. That was week 14, uh, 18, and 22. At week 26, placebo patients were switched to UPA. Also, and very uniquely, any patient treated with UPA or any patient with adalimumab who didn't achieve low disease activity by CDI, so a CDI less than or equal to 10, true treat to target program, those patients were switched as well. UPA to ADA, ADA to UPA. So we had truly primary non-responders to a JAK, switched to a TNF, that's never been reported before, and a true primary um, TNF failure switched to a JAK, right, the reverse. And what we found was, the way to interpret this correctly, is that both groups responded. So there were patients who, who didn't respond to the JAK, did respond to the TNF. Patients didn't respond to the TNF, did respond to the JAK. You look at the numbers, it looks like UPA is better than ADA, but I can say it's, not, say it's not powered. It's too few patients to really know. It may be true, but I wouldn't go to say that one is better than the other in the switch. But what is unique is I know it's the switch. Very importantly, we did the switch immediately. So a patient who's on UPA and they come in week 26 and they have a CDI of 11, they're given Yumira that day. They're given um, Adalimab that day. Right. No way. No wash out. Patient who's at week 26 who is giving Adalimab, uh, but then they don't have a CDI, they are switched to UPA two weeks later. But you have to remember, they come in week 26, that's when you, when you do it, they receive their adalimumab two weeks later, uh, two weeks before. So it was an immediate switch. No washout. No washout. Is there a safety penalty for the immediate switch? Was there a safety signal? Yes. Yeah, so as you would expect, because you'd expect that now you have both drugs on, on board, there should be a significant increase in certainly serious infectious episodes except we didn't see any of that. We didn't see any difference in the safety from immediately after the switch. So in the first three months after the switch to the six months after the switch, the first few weeks after the switch, then we saw it in the beginning of the study. Um, we didn't see any safety signal. Take home message for the clinician in that situation of having a TNF that's not working or even having a JAK that's not working? So the TECO message is what the practicing rheumatologist has done for years now. You have a patient who um, you have on biologic, they're not responding, you decide you're going to make the switch. And what virtually every rheumatologist in the world does, virtually every is they do an immediate switch now. It's different than clinical studies. And it looks like it's been safe. We've all we've all thought it's been safe. This actually is data which shows you that it probably is safe. So that's very reassuring. So these two important studies, um, I think certainly select compare is a very pivotal study. 
Um, any final uh, take-home messages you want for the practicing clinician about ubiducitinib itself? With ubiducitinib, so I think that ubiducitinib, uh, the, the program has shown it's better than methotrexate. So in the best of world worlds, where price isn't an issue, you might want to start with a jack. You might want to start with ubiducitinib. But practically, you're not going to do it. It's first of all, it's not the label. Yeah. The cost is prohibitive. Thirdly, we all love methotrexate. Sure. So you would start with methotrexate. But after methotrexate, what would you do? I am beginning to believe, and beginning to do, actually, that before I start a biologic, if I have access, I start a jack. And the reason for that is what we've discussed before. You have three drugs which have shown to some extent that they're superior, and the other is at least non-inferior. Why not start with the drug? Even though the numbers are small, the differences are small, why not use that type of drug? And then the argument is we've used TNF for 20 years. Well, we've used jacks for seven, eight years, right? Now, what's the difference? So I would use it early. And I wouldn't, uh, now with this program, I actually wouldn't worry about starting a jack and the patient has a response switching to a TNF, okay. switching to another mechanism. Would you start? Oh, we start combo. And reassess it a certain length of time, 12 weeks or something like yes. that. So uh, we've shown, I've shown uh, with tofacitinib, I've shown with baricitinib, actually. Um, I suspect we'll see the same thing with patacin, although it hasn't been tested, or with, uh, when they test that, that there are more patients that respond to the combination than to the monotherapy. Monotherapies work, work quite well. So uh, usually what I would do is I would start methotrexate, and if the patient doesn't have a response to meth, it has no response to methotrexate, which is rare, um, after three months, I would switch. I wouldn't continue methotrexate, and I would switch to ubiquitinib, tofacitinib, baricitinib as monotherapy. But if they have had a response, but not a good enough response, then I would add. And then when they have a good response, they achieve a remission, a CDI remission, an SDI remission, um, then I would uh, certainly consider reduction and possible elimination of the methotrexate. I think that w what I find in my practice, we've actually seen in studies, it's about 60, 70% of patients can be treated with monotherapy uh, of the JAK. Uh, and so when you think about monotherapy, you think about a JAK, think about an IL-6. But all of them in groups of patients will work better as combo. And I think in mature markets that have been using jacks for many years now, it's really a question of persistence and adherence and keeping people on. Do you think they'll ever do head-to-heads with jacks? And do you foresee a jack IR study in the crystal ball future? I think we'll see a jack IR study. Um, I'm sure we'll see a jack IR study. It may be with new or different molecules, but I think we'll see a jack IR study. The question is, is, you know, what is Gilead going to do with Fogonanib? Um, are they going to do something different now? I don't know. I do know that we are seeing studies with new mechanisms comparing to JAKs, right? Tick 2 inhibitors and the like. BTK. BTK. Yeah. Uh, we 
we're seeing combination studies. We're seeing um, uh, and the the head-to-head -head, rather than being at a limit map, being a jack. Right. So we're we're shifting what we're seeing in, in terms of studies. I'm sure that the clinician out there with the ability to prescribe three and soon four jacks, how do they know which one to use? You don't. So the issue is going to be. Uh, it's going to be marketing by the by the companies. That, that's clear. Um, it's going to be access, which is cheapest. Um, I, I think that you know we haven't seen all the data from Fogadinib yet, but uh, the data that we've seen it seems to work. Seems to work fairly well. Whether it works as well as Upadacinib, I don't know because I haven't seen it head to head. Is there a safe? Is there? Is it a little bit safer? There is a flavor that it may be a little bit safer, um, less zoster. Um, I don't know about VTEs. So we may turn around and say that Fogadinib possibly is a safer jack, maybe not as effective, maybe as effective and safer. Right? We don't know. Yeah. Um, but clearly Fogadinib is going to need something. Patacinib is going to the market. At least in the U.S., uh, where baricitinib is hampered because you only have the two milligrams, and its indication is after enough. Um, so against TOFA, some of its the TOFA data is very strong, and TOFA is a very strong. Um, some of the data with uh, with is a little bit better. Um, so how is Abby going to market versus Pfizer? Uh, which would you pick? I don't know which one you would pick. I think it would be access. Yes. And you have baricitinib in Australia. Yes. Now, which would you pick? Well, it's been very successful in Australia, baricitinib. Very successful in Germany and many countries around the and world. So I think it's going to be difficult for the clinician. And I think the question always, which should I pick to use? But if they're really good, yes. so you make a mistake and you pick the other one that's really good, <laughs> it's not so bad for the patient. Exactly. And safety, I think, is really going to take registries and big numbers and, and comorbidities to show any difference between them. I think from clinical trials, it's going to be very tough. But we're going to have to, but you have to be careful. I agree with you that it's going to be registry, but the registries have to be careful. Sure. They have to make sure that there isn't bias, so you don't get what we did with uh, Abitacept. Sure. In registries, because all the really bad patients were put on ABBA. Fair enough. So, the nice control group and no selection bias in the registries. Okay. So, we thank you very much for your time today. Um, I think it's an exciting time to be a rheumatologist. I think we have seen a shift. This has been the CSF August Author Podcast. If you'd like to know more about this paper and others uploaded to the website this month with slides that are being worked on, they're available in the publication section at cytokinesignaling.com, C-Y-T-O-K-I-N-E-S-I-G-N-A-L-L.com. Please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or other podcast media and let us know what you think. We like to see some feedback. Thank you very much for your time, Professor Roy. You're welcome. Thank you.